Welcome to Single Malt History with Gareth Russell, pouring out your serving of pure, distilled, intoxicating, and occasionally delicious history. you just heard is a pretty chilling recreation of the message CQD, CQD, the distress call, this is Titanic, I require immediate assistance. One of the hundreds of wireless messages fired out from the Titanic's wireless radio room 109 years ago today at the time of recording, April 15th. 25-year-old Jack Phillips from Surrey in England and his 22-year-old colleague Harold Bride from London obeyed Captain Smith's orders to use the new wireless technology to contact other ships to see if any might be nearby to reach them in time for an evacuation. They had managed to make contact with the Titanic's splendid sister ship, the Olympic, but she was hundreds of miles away, barely long into a return voyage from New York. Other ships like the Virginian, the Frankfurt and the Mount Temple were also too far away to be of practical assistance. The closest seemed to be the British passenger ship, the Carpathia, not very large, barely a quarter of the Titanic's tonnage, but en route from New York to the British Overseas Territory of Gibraltar. Her wireless operator had picked up the Titanic's distress call and his captain had turned the Carpathia to begin a mad dash through the night to try to reach the Titanic in time. But even with that, it didn't look like she would arrive at the Titanic's coordinates for four or so hours and it really didn't look as if the Titanic would last that long. From the office where they were frantically working to save the lives of thousands of people they did not know, Jack Phillips and Harold Bride could hear the building sounds of panic on the boat deck outside. By now, the Titanic's dip forward was more pronounced, making it unambiguously clear to those on board that a place in the lifeboats was more desirable than staying on the ailing Titanic. Even now, though, that was not a universally shared view. The Titanic was sinking at such a slow, stately pace that, according to passenger Jack Thayer, there were plenty on board who, up until about 20 minutes before the end, genuinely and not unreasonably thought she would manage to stay afloat. By this point, barriers of class were breaking down. One of the things I discovered while researching my book, The Ship of Dreams, and which really stuck with me personally as a historian, was that the Titanic's third-class passengers were never locked below to prevent them getting up to the lifeboats. 
I go into more detail in the book about why and how that horrible dark legend sprang up in the first place and why it keeps being repeated in movies about the Titanic. We've all seen those scenes. But what was happening on the night in question was that because Captain Smith had failed to tell the majority of his crew that the situation was urgent, many of the hospitality crew assigned to care for third class were totally failing to impart any sense of panic to their passengers. To this was added the fact that when I checked the passenger lists and did some rudimentary national mathematics, I realised that the Titanic's third-class passengers spoke a combined total of 16 different languages, served by a crew that almost universally only spoke English in a sinking ship with signs solely in English, meaning that once the danger did start to become more apparent, organising the movement from third-class up to the boat deck proved extremely difficult especially since many passengers in third class didn't have insurance. They were emigrating to start a new life. They had sunk a lot of their savings into this move. They were understandably nervous to be parted from their luggage, which they were not allowed to bring into the lifeboats. By the way, if you ever see a Titanic suitcase for sale, it's fraud. No piece of luggage made it. It's also worth noting that an Irish or English passenger in third class on the Titanic had a much higher chance of survival than, say, the Russian, Bulgarian, Arabic or Chinese-speaking passengers. And I suspect that's because the British and Irish passengers could both communicate with the crew to understand the mounting danger, and crucially, they could also read the signs showing them the way to the boat and promenade decks. In the book, I argue, the failure to envisage any collision damaging enough to require the evacuation of everybody on board in a relatively short period of time meant that the third-class passengers, speaking over a dozen languages between them, needed to be guided to a part of the ship of which they had no prior experience, since it was constructed to discourage their interaction with it by crew members who struggled both to communicate with them and to fully appreciate the dangers themselves until it was too late. It was thus egregious incompetence rather than malevolent snobbery. I should also point out for uh, fairness sake and an academic question, that there are statisticians who have argued firmly that the higher death toll in third class was to a very large degree contributed to by gender rather than class, with there being more single men in third compared to the other two classes in an evacuation that was increasingly prioritising the safety of women and children. There's a lot of literature on this and I'm sort of uh, condensing it for accessibility here. For Rhoda Abbott, a third-class passenger and member of the Salvation Army who had survived an abusive marriage with the help of her church, which was now paying for her and her two sons to return to America, the women and children rule caused a panic when she reached the lifeboats. 
Her youngest boy, Eugene, was 11 and the crew waved him and his mother through to board a lifeboat, but they held back his brother, Rossmore. Rhoda pleaded with them that Rossmore was only 16, but he was wearing a man's trousers, an alleged sign of adulthood in the Edwardian era. So tall and well-built, Rossmore was denied a place. Rhoda understandably refused to leave without her 16-year-old son, so she and Eugene went back to him, wondering and worrying about what to do next. The ship's band had apparently switched from soothing waltzes and jaunty ragtime to stirring pieces of British patriotic music, quitting the lounge for a spot near the grand staircase and later moving famously out onto the deck, where eventually, just as secularism had given way to patriotism, the latter allegedly yielded to spirituality. Many historians have queried this, but using interviews from the band leader published before he joined the Titanic and some eyewitness testimonies, I am one of those historians who does firmly believe that the band's set list became increasingly religious as the night wore in to the small hours of the morning. The Ryerson family were preparing to board a lifeboat when their son, who was 13, was also turned back as his height and wardrobe made the officer think he was older. Ryerson's mother, Emily, was not getting in the lifeboat without him. They were sailing home to bury his big brother who'd been killed in a car accident a few days earlier. So his father begged the officer to let the 13-year-old get into the lifeboats with his mother and sisters. And he reluctantly yielded. Colonel Astor, the richest man on the ship, now wanted to get his pregnant wife Madeline off the Titanic. He asked if he could accompany her, given how fragile she felt. But he politely accepted the officer's rejection of that request by stepping back as Madeline crossed over into one of the lifeboats. Gathered around, helping women and children into the boats, were railway tycoons, the president of Vacuum Oil, the American president's advisor, a Philadelphian millionaire and a Southern historian. Survivor Cornelia Andrews wrote later of them, calling them that unbroken line of splendid Americans not allowed to get into the boats before the women and children were off. It would make you proud of your countrymen, all multimillionaires and hundreds of other men standing without complaint or murmur, not making one attempt to save themselves. Is that not chivalry for you? It is not true that some men dressed as women to escape the Titanic. That's an old myth designed to shame the men who did survive. A fine example of spite being faster on its feet than truth, and perhaps a lesson for us all when we hear cruel stories of the famous. The first-class men's bravery was being replicated across the ship. Second-class passenger Benjamin Hart helped his wife and their sobbing seven-year-old daughter, Eva, into lifeboat 14, turning to reassure the ship's fifth officer, I'm not going in, but for God's sake, look after my wife and child. 
He stepped back on deck and was never seen again by his wife or child. From third class, Eugene Daly, the Irish nationalist and talented musician, was helping women from his hometown up into the lifeboats. Even though he knew the water was freezing, Daly was determined to make an effort to save himself when the final plunge came, because, in his own words, life was sweet to me and I wanted to save myself. But for other passengers, the fight was going out of them. Another third-class ticket holder who, like Eugene Daly, had helped escort women and children up to the lifeboats was a 50-year-old Swedish man called Johan Svensson Lundahl. He had actually emigrated to America years earlier, but he'd been back visiting Sweden, the old country, as he called it. After seeing the women he was helping safely evacuated in the lifeboats, he turned to some of his Swedish friends that he'd made during the voyage and said, Goodbye, friends. I'm too old to fight the Atlantic. Lundahl went back to the comfort of the third-class smoking room to wait. Or as one of his friends who survived put it later, there was a chair there awaiting his last call. At about 2am, two hours and 20 minutes after the collision with the iceberg, the Titanic's lights dipped in strength, prompting a fresh surge in panic for those still trapped on board. The fact that the power lasted for as long as it did is a magnificent testament to the suicidal bravery of the ship's engineers from Belfast and England, who chose to stay below to try to keep the power going for as long as they could, even though it rapidly became clear that it would mean their deaths. As the engine rooms flooded, Jack Phillips and Harold Bride were still manically sending Morse code to try to find rescue ships nearer, maybe some that might be faster than the valiant Carpathia still on her way, still too far away. As the Titanic slipped further into the icy, eerily calm Atlantic, sounds began to emanate from within as piece by piece things fell from their tables, their bookshelves, their wardrobes. North Irish writer Sean Bullock from County Fermanagh, who would, within a few months, write a commemorative biography of the Titanic's tragic designer, Thomas Andrews, tracked down eyewitness testimonies of the sinking. And this is what he had to say of that fatal moment, just before the end wrapped herself around the Titanic to carry her below. Shan Bullock's words are read by Irish actor Killam Carragher. One by one, her port lights, that still burned row above row in dreadful sloping lines, sank slowly into darkness. Soon the lights would tilt upright, then flash out and flash bright again. Then, as the engines crash down on the bulkheads, go out once more. And leave that awful form standing up against the sky, motionless, black. Preparing for the final plunge. But that time was not yet. 
on deck, Father Josef Perischitz and Father Thomas Biles, the Catholic priests who the previous morning had celebrated Sunday Mass for the Octave of Easter, first in the second-class library and then in the third-class general room, prepared to perform a greater mission of mercy. They called those frightened Catholics to them, leading them in the recitation of the Rosary. Then, seeing terrified Protestant and Jewish passengers nearby, one of the priests called over good people, inviting them to join the group now clustered in camaraderie around the two priests. Although it would have been said in Latin that night, for clarity's sake, I will say it in English. The Ave Maria, or the Hail Mary, is one of the most frequently intoned prayers in the Catholic faith, as they had thousands of times, tens, hundreds of thousands of times, through the course of their lives, the two priests led their most unusual congregation in prayer with the words, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. And then those people on the deck of the Titanic answered back with the couplet they had said thousands of times, which they had first learned on their mother's knees long before they made their first Holy Communion. And one of the beauties of the Hail Mary is that it speaks to the immediate and the eternal. And it's hard not to imagine that as they said these words on the Titanic, that those praying did not draw dread and terrible comfort from the final supplication of the Hail Mary, which perhaps for the first time in their lives had acquired a special relevance. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. One of the first-class passengers who had been helping with the loading of the lifeboats was an Alabama-born historian, Colonel Archibald Gracie IV. Although it's notorious that there weren't enough lifeboats on the Titanic for everybody, and there weren't, even if there had been, it's doubtful that there would have been much difference to the final death toll, because they didn't even manage to get off all the lifeboats they had. Switching from the now-gone wooden lifeboats, Colonel Gracie offered to help the ship's officers by climbing onto the roof of the officers' quarters to help them as they unpacked the canvas-covered emergency craft, the collapsibles. The Titanic's bow, forward section, had still only settled by eight degrees. The water wasn't even yet at the first of her four funnels. She had held up remarkably. When people say very confidently that the steel used in the Titanic was subpar, that's why it sank, I like to point to photographs of the wreck, the steel and rivets of which are still holding together 109 years later at the bottom of the ocean under nearly unimaginable pressure. Colonel Gracie had no reason to think the end, however, was quite as close as it was. But at about 2.10am, as he was helping with the collapsible, 
Colonel Gracie heard from deep beneath his feet a sound so loud and so terrible he thought the boilers were exploding. In fact, the bulkheads were at last giving way, shattering and yielding themselves to the Atlantic. As they collapsed in surrender, the Titanic gave a sudden plunge forward, creating a wave that surged up over the bridge to the wireless room as the operators at last fled. This artificially created wave of sub-zero water crashed also over Colonel Gracie as he had been helping the officers with the lifeboats. Colonel Gracie's account for us of what happened next is brought to life by actor Peter Evangelista. My holding on to the iron railing prevented my being knocked unconscious. I pulled myself over onto the roof on my stomach, but before I could get to my feet, I was in a whirlpool of water, swirling round and round as I still tried to cling to the railing as the ship plunged to the depths below. Down, down I went. It seemed a great distance. There was a very noticeable pressure upon my ears. When underwater, I retained a great sense of general direction, and as soon as I could do so, I swam away from the starboard side of the ship, as I knew my life depended upon it. I swam with all my strength, and I seemed endowed with an extra supply for the occasion. I was incited to this desperate effort by the thought of boiling water, or steam, from the expected explosion of the ship's boilers, and that I would be scalded to death, like the sailors of whom I read in the account of the British battleship Victoria which sank in collision in the Mediterranean in 1893. As Colonel Gracie struggled in the water, the ocean crashed down and through the grand staircase, shredding the first of the first-class cabins and exploding into the reading and writing room. Passengers began to jump from the deck, only to be sucked under or crushed as the first and then the second funnels broke free, collapsing into water filled with the fearful, many of them disoriented, as they struggled to adapt to the shock of the cold they experienced when they jumped in. The lifeboat Colonel Gracie had worked on floated off upside down, onto which stokers from the boiler rooms climbed on board. One of the stokers offered out his hand to pull a young man from the ocean. It was the teenage son of a Philadelphian millionaire. From there, they could see the hundreds still on board rushing backwards towards the stern as it rose higher and higher out of the ocean and towards the night sky while the boy disappeared completely beneath the ocean. One survivor compared the hideous sounds from the Titanic to standing under a railway bridge while an express train passes overhead, mingled with the noise of a pressed steel factory and the wholesale breakage of China. As she rose higher and higher towards the moonless sky, the Titanic's lights finally failed. In the pitch black, 
Many of those in the lifeboats weren't sure what they were seeing or hearing as the Titanic snapped in three. Under unbearable pressure, a piece collapsed and fell away, floating two and a half miles to the seabed, while at about the halfway point, the Titanic snapped somewhere around where the first-class lounge was located. The lounge. The site. An hour or so earlier of hot cocoa gossip and an impromptu concert. The tear then continued, shattering through the luxurious suites on B-deck, the most expensive at sea. Down to C-deck staterooms, which had housed tycoons and aristocrats. Shredding into the first-class dining saloon, the crew corridors, the third-class dining room, where immigrants had dreamed of the new life they were en route to start. Storerooms, crew accommodation, boiler rooms went next. Air bubbles, enormous and lethal, began to burst through the piece of the Titanic still left momentarily afloat. The first-class veranda cafe was all but obliterated by the air bubbles, while passengers and crew scurried in terror to the stern. Below them, being the now darkened, upended third-class general room, at about 2.20am, the Titanic disappeared from view with almost no suction, her clean, elegant lines slipping away beneath a still flat, still calm sea. And then came the sounds, the screams and the begging of about 1,400 people. In lifeboat number eight, the commanding sailor Thomas Jones announced he was going back to help them. The Countess of Rothes, who had volunteered to help steer the lifeboat because she had some experience with her husband's racing yacht, which has to be the most well-meaning example of 1% help I've ever heard, backed Jones up. She wanted to go back, as did the Countess's husband's cousin Gladys and another American lady whose name they did not quite catch. But the others in lifeboat number eight erupted into rage at the idea of rowing back to the wreck site in case their lifeboat was swamped by those struggling in the water. Overruled and heartbroken, Jones asked the Countess of Rothes if she would provide testimony for him if they were ever rescued, stating that he had wanted to go back but was overruled. The Countess promised that if they lived, she would stand witness for his character. Even though they had been outvoted, the Countess and Jones would live with the pain of not persuading the others to go back for the rest of their lives. Survivor's guilt can be a terrible thing. By the time some lifeboats were organised to help with a more thorough rescue, the water had already killed most of those who had jumped. Some who were pulled to safety died later, including several crew members and a pretty heavily overweight first-class businessman whose weight had helped insulate him, but he was sadly left in the water for too long, later dying from hypothermia. A lifeboat that did return to the immediate vicinity said it took them 30 minutes to row 20 yards because the water around them was so thick with the bodies of the dead. That was, according to a hardened sailor, 
a sight enough to break the stoutest heart. One man managed to swim to the overturned lifeboat, the aforementioned one that had floated off the Titanic as it sank. He asked to be helped up, but by that point the fragile craft was so packed that they honestly might have capsized had one more person come on board. When they explained this to the shivering man asking for help in the water, he replied, All right, boys, good luck and God bless you. After which he swam away, where a few minutes later, presumably, he became one of the Titanic's 1,496 victims. Back in lifeboat number eight, the Countess of Rothes offered to row. She and her husband's cousin Gladys, who she called my cousin, took turns between rowing and steering, alternating for the next five hours. The sailor Jones later nicknamed her the plucky little countess, as she led their lifeboat in Christian hymns like Lead Kindly Light to keep their spirits up as she rowed. Internally, the Countess was suffering with mounting exhaustion and understandable emotional agony. When the sun rose, apparently a magnificent dawn, iridescent hues showed that the lifeboats were surrounded by palaces, mountains of ice, which further shook the Countess's spirits, though she kept rowing, talking and singing as though nothing was wrong. The calm of the evening gave way to a blustery morning. The sea turned choppy. The Countess's maid, Sissy Mayoni, was not the only survivor to begin suffering dreadfully from seasickness as the deteriorating weather took to splashing the survivors' faces with freezing water, sloshing to lifeboats filled with the emotionally pulverised and physically exhausted the Countess of Rothes's words are again read for us by Rebecca Lenehan. The water was so black and very calm at first. Towards dawn it got rough, and one felt an awful loneliness and exhaustion. But my cousin Gladys and I had to row and steer as only T. Jones the sailor knew anything about a boat. All the crew were of course magnificent in their behaviour, and I always think so much ought to have been said and written about the engineers and firemen who never ever came up on deck and did all they could to keep a ship afloat for as long as possible. In another lifeboat, a male passenger showed a gun to another survivor, saying he and his wife planned to use the gun to commit suicide if they weren't rescued, and he was welcome to use the spare bullets for him and his wife if and when the need arose. But then, back in lifeboat eight, a sailor leant over and whispered to the countess, Look at the next wave we top. Don't say anything in case I'm wrong. But he wasn't wrong. There on the horizon was the funnel smoke and welcoming lights of the Carpathia. She had arrived to rescue them and to begin, perhaps, the even more agonising process of grieving. The rescue mission on the Carpathia was one of the most um, difficult things, as well as um, fascinating in a, in a 
painful way that I researched for my book. And so tomorrow, my Titanic Week anniversary will deal with what happened on the Carpathia. So don't forget to follow or tune in for that. My thanks, of course, uh, to Caelan Carraher, Peter Evangelista and Rebecca Lenehan for joining me to bring to life the words of the writer, the colonel and the countess for today's episode. Uh, if I could also, um, hopefully not in a preachy way, uh, just say to anyone in Belfast, I have caught myself trying to do it a bit more. If you're ever walking past City Hall, there is a monument to the Belfast engineers I think it's the angel of death hovering over the sea. Um, if they should come to your mind, um, they to me, they are some of the most admirably heroic people I can think of. They never saw light nor land again for choosing to stay deep within the Titanic to keep the power going for as long as they could. And I think we live in such a cynical age where we try to always assign the worst possible motive um, to heroes sometimes. And, and to me, those men were extraordinary, uh, deep and true altruism. It doesn't feel right to <laughs> sign off with my usual jingle for this podcast. So as I mentioned, I, I do believe um, from my research that the Titanic's band played Christian hymns towards the end. And I do strongly believe that one of them was nearer my God to thee. I should point out, not all historians agree with me. Uh, I believe the evidence does obviously back up uh, my own interpretation and, and the interpretation of historians I agree with. But certainly, nearer my God to thee is the tune perhaps now most indelibly associated with the Titanic in popular culture. And so I'll play out with this gramophone recording off the hymn. It's not of the best quality, I'm not sure of the date, but I like the gramophone sound to it. And I like to err on the side of good-hearted emotion with this and imagining, I think justifiably, that it was part of the collective grieving process and that people in Britain and America listened to this with thoughts of what had been lost on April the 15th, 1912. Thank you again for your time, and I hope I'll uh, metaphorically see you tomorrow. <laughs>